The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Today I want to look at uh, Rise of Voluntarism. This is quite a tough subject in many ways, so I'm going to spend, I'm, I'm going to go at a relatively leisurely pace um, and try to bring out the, the most important aspects of what's happening in the later Middle Ages um, in as straightforward way as I can. A book I recommend to you, it's almost 40 years old now, but it's still a very good book on this subject, is uh, Overman's Harvest of Medieval Theology. Um, known as his Overman's Harvest. The title of the book is deliberately provocative in Overman is reacting against the idea that uh, theology is in, and culture in general is in, is in terrible and inexorable decline at the end of the Middle Ages. Uh, some of you may have come across, if you've done history courses, Heitzinger's book, The Waning of the Middle Ages. That's what it's called in translation. Uh, Heitzinger puts the view across very much that things are in decline and that things are decaying and collapsing. Overman wants to put the case against and argues that the theology going on at the end of the Middle Ages is highly sophisticated, highly self-aware. Um, Overman is a very interesting scholar. He's one of those people, he was the pioneer of emphasising the positive connection between the late Middle Ages and the early Reformation. He worked both in late medieval theology and in Lutheran Calvin, pointing out how, although something's changed and there were many significant differences between the late Middle Ages and the Reformation, there were also great continuities well, as well. Uh, so Obermann is a very significant scholar, and this was one of his first books, and it remains a classic to this day. So The Harvest of Medieval Theology. It's a tough book, um, but what's new, one well, inclined to say. Um, in fact, if you I, I think if you, if you wanted to read it, if you read the last part first, you might find out the best way into it, um, and then go back to the beginning after you've read the end. That's probably the best way of doing it. If a book is well written... You should be able to read the first paragraph and last paragraph of every chapter and get some idea of what the guy is talking about overall. So that's another way to approach a book like this. Read the first page and the last page, say, of every chapter to get the overall framework of the arguments. Then you can go back and focus on the chapters that you're particularly interested in. Nobody has time to read every book that's written on the subject, so that's one way of working out which bits are relevant and which aren't. So then, rise of voluntarism, sort of themes in late medieval theology. It's important um, for those of us who, who belong to the Reformed tradition because it is in late medieval voluntarism that certain elements that feed through into the Reformation emerge. So, again, I've said to you a number of occasions, put from your mind the idea that everything that goes on in the Middle Ages is bad. There are certain things we look at that feed directly into the Reformation. The Reformation couldn't have happened if certain intellectual developments hadn't taken place in the late Middle Ages. That is not to say that we only study the Middle Ages to find those bits, if you like, that agree with us. I think there's a study of the Middle Ages is worthwhile in itself for seeing how Christians through the ages have struggled with some of the great problems that the biblical text has thrown up, the philosophy has thrown up. But on this particular point, I think we're approaching now uh, issues that touch 
very closely at the heart of Luther in particular, Luther's Reformation program, but also that of Calvin himself. I want to give you a couple of important names first before we go on to look at uh, some of the significant developments. First guy is John Duns Scotus. His dates, around about 1265 to 1308. As the name suggests, he's a Scotsman. He was uh, born near a place called Duns, which is near the borders. So John Duns, John from Duns, the Scotsman, his name means. He studied at Oxford. Why did he study at Oxford? Why did he study at Oxford? Can't hear. Sorry? It's the only place to study. There are no universities in Scotland at this time. So Scotsmen have to go to England to get their higher education. It's as simple as that. He studied at Oxford, uh, took his doctorate and completed it at Paris. <coughs> and became regent of Paris University in 1305. In 1307, he transfers to Cologne in Germany. But you can see from his dates, if he transfers to Cologne in 1307, he dies in 1308. And there's a rather grim tale about his death that I think is probably true. <coughs> Some years ago, one of my students handed me this sort of carting book, The Child's Book of Death. It's rather sort of sick thing, I thought, but something some group in Britain had decided it was very good to tell little children about death, sort of at the earliest possible opportunity, and they produced this kind of everything a kid wants to know about death books. And it had got various anecdotes from uh, previous centuries in there about people who'd been buried alive. And apparently, according to this book, um, Dunscotus was buried in the crypt at Cologne Cathedral. And when they came to bury the next person and unseal the crypt and open the door, they found Dunscotus's body out of his coffin and all his hands sort of torn up. So obviously he'd been buried alive, had revived in the coffin, had woken up, realised what had happened and had desperately tried to escape and had ultimately suffocated or starved or died of dehydration or something. So he comes to a rather grisly end, Dunscotus. Um, I just throw that in as a sort of... He's a fairly boring character. It's, one of the most, <laughs> it's probably the most interesting fact you'll hear about him today. So, Dunscotus then. Um, I want to talk about the kind of trends that Dunscotus sets up in a bit more detail later on. But one of his key contributions that I won't touch on later on, but you should know about, is that Duns makes crucial uh, contributions to our understanding about language about God. You'll remember earlier in the course I talked about Dionysius the Areopagite, this strange, mysterious Syrian monk of the 5th, 6th century. We're not quite sure who he was. But he argued that uh, <coughs> talking about God, all you can say about God is a negative statements. All you can do when, when you talk about God is deny things of him. I said, it, you know, it sounds very strange to us, but actually when we think about much of the language that we use about God, we actually spend much of our time denying things about God. We have positive sounding words, but when you're actually asked what they mean, we give them a negative meaning. So infinite. God is infinite. What does that mean? It means God is not finite. God does not have limits. So we ourselves, well our first reaction might be to Dionysus, it's very strange stuff. Our own language about God is often very, very negative. Um, you know, we use positive words when we define them. We define them by denying certain positive characteristics such as find you God is impassable, God is immutable, God doesn't suffer, God doesn't change. We're denying things of him. And you remember that Dionysus pushes this to the, sort of the nth degree and he says we don't just deny things about God but we have to deny the denials about God as well. 
So God is not a body, but God is not not a body either. Where does that leave us? Of course, it ultimately leaves us with really all we can say is that we can say nothing about God. And I suppose we have to say we, we can't just say nothing about God. We can just say not nothing about God as well. It becomes a kind of nihilistic uh, God is pushed way, way beyond anything that we can apprehend or talk about. Well, Dionysus has a good point. It's, it's very useful, I think, Dionysus' approach, because it underlines that there is a basic difference between God and humanity. I think there's some truth in what Dionysus says there, that there is a fundamental difference between creator and creation, between God and humanity, that his understanding of negative language underlines. But we don't want to say that God is merely like us, only much, much bigger. Dionysus touches on some deep truth there, that God is radically different to us. But, of course, if you're going to be a theologian, you need to have a more positive approach to language about God. If you simply just deny things about God, at the end of the day, all you utterly unknowable. Well, the whole purpose of being a theologian, you kind of work on the presupposition, if you like, that God is in some way knowable. And we can, in some meaningful way, talk about it. This is where the great uh, logical, linguistic philosophers of the Middle Ages come into their own. Aquinas is perhaps the most influential person in this regard. Aquinas uses Dionysius quite a lot. He has a section in the Summa Theologia on the divine names. And it's basically cribbed out of uh, Dionysius the Areopagite. But he wants to go beyond Dionysius and say that uh, we can use language in a way that is beyond mere negative statements. And Aquinas analyzes three ways that words can be used about God. Let's take uh, the sentence, God is good. The three ways Aquinas says you can use that sentence. You can use it equivocally. You can use it analogically. You can use it univocally or univocally. I'm not quite sure how it should be pronounced, but God is good. If we use that sentence equivocally, what are we doing? Well, how do we get our concept of good? Our concept of good comes from our knowledge of good things. If I walk up to somebody on the front row now, hit him over the head with a stick, that is not good, that is bad. So that is bad. How does he know that's bad? Because he has some kind of concept of what, what good is. And he knows that that is not it. So... God is good. How do we use the concept of good? Well, we've got some idea of what, God is, uh, of, what, of what good is. If we use that equivocally about God, then what we do is we actually divide what we understand as being good from what good is in God. Equivocal means we use the same sound. We use the same pattern of letters on the page. But we mean completely different things by them. Um, trying to think... Uh, uh, if you think... If you say, I bow before the Queen or I climbed the bow of the tree, using the same sound, bow, but they mean two entirely different things. The sound is being used equivocally. I bow before the queen, I shot Bambi with my bow and arrow. We're using the same B-O-W pattern of letters, but we're using it equiv equivocally. If you looked at me bowing before the queen, you'd have no idea of the terrible and tragic fate that befell Bambi just hours later when I was out in the woods with my bow and arrow. So, equivocal use of language is where you use the same word, the same sound, the same pattern of letters, but basically you mean different things by them. So if we say God is good and, I don't know, Josh Harley is good, and we use the language equivocally, we're really not actually saying anything meaningful about God at all. The use of the word good for Josh bears no resemblance 
for how we use it for God, and therefore doesn't tell us anything about God at all. We could use the language univocally or univocally. So we'll say that's not an option. That doesn't really get us beyond Dionysius. We could use the language univocally. Josh Harney is good. God is good. That means that God is good in the identical way that Josh Harney is good. We use the word in the same way. So as goodness is for Josh, so you can take that concept of goodness, transplant it over to God, and God is good in the same way, and goodness relates to God's being in the same way that goodness relates to Josh Harney's being. Various problems arise from that, linguistic and theological. One of them is that uh, Josh Harney could go out and become a crazed axe murderer later on. He ceases to be good. So if the concept of goodness applies to Josh in the same way that Josh's concept of goodness applies to God, that presumably means that God can go out later on and cease to be good. So there's all kind of theological problems arise with that. Secondly, it means that, well, what's my idea of God then? My idea of God is that it's something like Josh over there. Now, Josh is a good chap, don't get me wrong. But I think we'd be in problems if God was merely like Josh. Josh is finite. Josh's goodness is, and he would probably admit, it's probably not what it should be. There are all kinds of factors that play in. So if we use the, the concept of goodness univocally for Josh and for God, we end up with a God that really looks just like a bigger version of Josh. Take the concept of, do the same with the concept of wisdom. I don't know, anybody here claim to be wise? If we simply take wisdom as it applies and functions in you and say, well, it's exactly the same in God, you end up with a God who is perhaps somewhat less wise than he should be. So this option too, according to Aquinas, is not a good one because it merely reduces God to human levels. So Aquinas opts for the analogical view of language. What is the analogical view of language? That there is some kind of positive relationship between language used about humans and language used about God. That when we say God is good and Josh Harney is good, there is some commonality between the word good in both phrases. That we do know something about God's goodness from looking at Josh's goodness. But crucially, we have to bear in mind that there is a proportion between them, not an identity between them. There is similarity, not direct correspondence. Why is there similarity and not direct correspondence? Well, Aquinas says it all comes down to the nature of human beings and the nature of uh, God. <coughs> Being. Existence. At its most basic level, the most basic thing we can say is that God exists and we exist. Agreed? There's some kind of similarity between the way we exist and God exists. Agreed? There's a difference, of course, in that it is of God's very nature always to exist. It's not of our very nature always to exist. There was a point in the past where we didn't exist. There was no point in the past where God didn't exist. God has always existed. He will always continue to exist. We were created. We came into being at a certain point in time. So there is a difference between the way we exist and the way God exists. And that means that when I say God exists and Truman exists, I'm not using the word exist in exactly the same way. I'm saying there's a similarity, but there's also a difference. Aquinas expresses this in a rather technical phrase. He says that God's essence is his existence, whereas our essence 
is separable from our existence. If I die, humanity continues to exist. The essence of humanity carries on, regardless of my existence or not. God ceases to exist, and God's essence ceases to exist as well. I think it's flawed arguments. I don't buy this argument. I'm just simply telling you at this point exactly what Aquinas says. I don't think the, the identity of essence and existence is philosophically, particularly... I think it is useful, but I'm not sure that it's true. And there is a difference, of course, always between things that are useful and things that are true. So then, there's an analogy between God's goodness and Josh's goodness. The problem, however, is that I'm not quite sure, and many of us weren't quite sure ultimately, if Thomas's analogy of being, his, that's what it's called, this, the analogy of being, the thing that allows us to talk meaningfully about God, whether it actually makes sense or not. Partly because there are two different ways that Aquinas plays it. Here's our, I'm sorry to keep picking on you, Josh, but it's a relatively flattering comparison, so I don't worry too much about it. There is Josh, and here is the Greek letter theta representing God. Now, Josh is wise, should we say. God is wise. There are two ways we can conceive of the analogy between these two things. On the one hand, we can say that uh, whereas Josh is wise in a finite way, God is wise in an infinite way. It's kind of an analogy of proportion, if you like. But what you do is you take Josh's wisdom and you multiply it, and you multiply it, and you multiply it, and you just keep on multiplying it forever and a day. And the more you multiply it, the more <clears throat> like infinity it becomes. So that's one way of looking at the analogy. Josh is say, Josh is wise to know, the second degree. God is wise to the infinite degree. So that's one way of looking at it, a kind of comparison. The other way that Aquinas sometimes plays it is that um, Josh's wisdom is to Josh as God's wisdom is to God. So the analogy here is not, if you like, between Josh's wisdom and God's wisdom, but between the way that Josh's wisdom plays out in him and the way that God's wisdom plays out in God. And Aquinas will use the analogy in both of these ways. There is a problem. There is a problem here. Problem with this one. <clears throat> What's the problem with that one? What's the problem with being a qualitative state? What's the problem with this? The quantitative. It's just it's a quantitative, not qualitative. And what's the problem with using a quantitative statement in this kind of context? Well, it's almost, or as I'm being difficult, we've got the same. Speaking about God, you can't quantitative. Exactly. Any medieval theologian worth their salt will tell you that finite number and infinity, finite quantity and infinity, are two different categories. How many finite things do you need to add together to come to infinity? You cannot, if you like. You could go to a beach and you could start counting the grains of sand on that beach. And you could count every grain of sand on that beach. And you could go around the whole world and you could count every grain of sand on that world. And you would come up with some hugely long number. And then you could put that number to the power of itself. And how much closer to infinity would you be than when you started? No closer at all. Because infinity is not a number. Infinity is outside of a category that is spannable, if you like, by finite lumps. So at the end of the day, the danger with this one is either it's meaningless, either it's meaningless, or you make God finite. You reduce God 
to the dimensions of your own mind. So that's the problem with the first one. Finitude, finiteness and infinity. Infinity is not simply a, a, a big lump of finiteness. Infinity is what about the second one? Josh's wisdom is to Josh as God's wisdom is to God. All kinds of problems set in with this one. First of all, if there's no, if the analogy is in the relation rather than between the concepts of wisdom, it doesn't tell us anything about God's wisdom. We still don't know what God's wisdom is. Secondly, Josh's wisdom is separable from Josh. Prior to him attending my classes, he was not wise. The portion that he forgets what I've taught him, he will cease to be wise. But God will always be wise. For God to cease to be wise is for God to cease to be God. So from the medieval framework, that doesn't work either. So Aquinas comes up with these schemes that seem to allow us to talk meaningfully about God. But actually, when weighed in the balance are somewhat less adequate for their task than might first have appeared. Now, I'm aware this is, some of this is quite subtle stuff. Anybody got any questions on that? Before I move on to how Don Scotus modifies things to allow us to talk about God, has anyone got any questions about this? One of the questions is, how does this filter down to Calvin and Luther? We'll get there. Yeah. This doesn't filter down directly to Calvin, though it does filter down to the Reformed tradition. I would say there are you go to the English Puritans of the 17th century, um, they need to know, I mean, <coughs> it's not enough just to talk about God. You've got to reflect on how you're capable of talking about God. So the same kind of questions come up time and again in theology. The, the reason I was wondering that is how does like Scottish relate the relationship with God? Like, does he see a relationship as being possible? I mean, we, will, we will come to Scotus in a minute. Scotus gives a response to this. Um, I think a, a better response, but also one that contains dangers and problems. We'll come to Scotus in a minute. I just wanted to check that everyone's got Aquinas at this point. Carlos, it seems to me to be the three basic options when you use language in a certain way. I don't think that all of language is necessarily used this way, because this is referring to a referential use of language, and not all language is referential. A promise is not on the surface, referential. It's doing something else than referring. So I think that today, you know, approaching <coughs> theological language, theologians have much more sophisticated linguistic tools at their disposal than Aquinas had. But I think you know, he's not doing a bad job. Yeah. He doesn't start his system with this. Part of the way into his system, he sort of stops and says, hang on a minute, I'm talking about God. How am I able to do that? I know I talk about God meaningfully. Let's try and work out why I can talk meaningfully about God. And that's where this comes in. There are two, there are two basic elements. <coughs> yeah. Essence and existence. Essence, to put it simple terms, is what you are. Existence is that you are. What Aquinas does is he identifies the two of them in God. He says what God is and that God is are not separable. They're one and the same thing in God. For God to be God is to exist. In creatures, however, essence and existence are separable. You're a human being, but if you die today, humanity continues. Nothing happens in the great essential universe, if you like. You as an individual pass away, but your essence, humanity, which you share with everybody else in this room, continues. Um, I'm not convinced that it's a meaning, you know, I'm sympathetic to some scholars on Thomas who say, really, this is not, this is not meaningful. 
because for me, my essence is my existence. <laughs> you know, for me to cease to exist is for me to, I, I don't only lose my existence, I also lose my essence. Uh, so I'm not convinced that this works. I'm simply saying that this is how Thomas does it. And it's incredibly important for Thomas. He built his doctrine of God on this basic identification. He picks it up from Boethius, people like that, the early church. And he builds his doctrine of God on the identification of, of essence and existence and does it in a brilliant fashion. I mean, Aquinas, to me, is one of the most brilliant but flawed theologians in that he works everything out so consistently, so precisely, even when I think he's starting in the wrong place. So that's the basic, basic point. So I should have elaborated that a bit further. Virginia, one last one. I think you just uh, you mentioned that he also talked about being as a being and other synonym to essence or to existence. Um, <clears throat> being, I think. Sorry, my mind's gone a blank. You you drew an arrow down and God is given a being slash existence. Where are we? Yeah. We all exist. We all possess being. So I suppose up there I make an identification between existence and being. Being existence. Yeah, being in the sense of existing, not being in the sense of being what you are. Okay. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have introduced the word at that point. Right, move on quickly to Duns Scotus. It does get more relevant and more interesting in the second half. I, well, I can't guarantee you, but I hope, I hope that's the case. Scotus has a, lot, a number of problems with the kind of talk about God that he's inherited. First of all, he thinks... The whole idea of negative theology is logically unsustainable. To deny something about God, he says, you've got to know something positive about it. To say that God is not a jellyfish requires you to know that God possesses certain characteristics that a jellyfish does not possess. I think it's a pretty good point. That to deny something about God, if you're going to, if you're going to have to, you can't build knowledge of God just on denials. To deny that God is not a brick, God is not a house, God is not a jellyfish, God is not a mountain. All of these negative denials of God require you to know some positive characteristic about it. God is not a body. It requires you to know really that God is spirit, should we say. So Skoda starts you know, with a logical point that you can't sustain the idea of, of denying something about anything without knowing something positive about it. Will is not a jellyfish. I know he's not a jellyfish because he possesses certain characteristics of being a human, if not all the characteristics of being a human. <laughs> Therefore, I know something positive about Will in order to be able to make that denial. And Scotus basically says, well, why should we assume it's any different with God? We've got to talk meaningfully about God. You've got to allow that even your denials depend upon some positive knowledge somewhere down the line. Secondly, and he's not reacting particularly against Thomas, he's reacting against... Um, I call Henry of Ghent. Even more tedious than Scotus, so I won't elaborate on Henry of Ghent's thinking in any length. But against Henry of Ghent, who seems to be pushing things off in a equivocal direction, Scotus argues that all talk about God requires some level of univocity between the world as it is and God himself. He basically says about, he more or less says about Aquinas, look, the guy should be honest. He can't preserve pure analogy. He has to allow that at some point down the line, if his analogy is going to be meaningful, there has to be some identity between 
Things we predicate of God, things we predicate of humanity. Words we use of God, words we use of humanity. To say God is wise and Josh is wise, it's not enough for the reasons I've outlined. To say there's an analogy between the two, because we've seen that ends up being meaningless. It doesn't tell us anything about God and Josh at all. There has to be some kind of core element that both God and Josh share that allows us to talk meaningfully about them. Take the jellyfish example. <clears throat> God is more perfect than a jellyfish. But let's start with the say that Josh is more perfect than a jellyfish. Is there anyone who disagrees with that statement? <laughs> Josh is more perfect than a jellyfish. So we can agree on that as a basic statement. Why is God why is Josh more perfect than a jellyfish? Well, is it because Josh is a human and the jellyfish is a jellyfish. Well, no, because no, on, on that level, there's no instance of any point of comparison. You can't say, this apple is more perfect than this orange. You've got to compare like and like to be able to make a meaningful statement like that. Why is Josh more perfect than a jellyfish? Well, Scota says it's because they both participate in something deeper than mere humanity or jellyfishness. They're both animals. But behind the species of humanity, behind the species of jellyfish, behind Josh, behind this particular jellyfish that's been washed up on the shore, and we're comparing with Josh at this particular point in time, behind those two things, there lies the idea of animal. Both of them participate in being animals. And when we look at the criteria for perfection within an animal, we can say that Josh is a more perfect animal than the jellyfish is. Jellyfish is perfect according to the rules of being a jellyfish. Josh might be perfect according to the rules of being a human. Let's compare the two of them, they've got to share in something. In this particular instance, they share in animalness. Josh is a more perfect animal than a jellyfish. He talks, he walks. He appears, in fact, on the front cover of the Westminster's latest uh, propaganda sheet that's come out uh, from, from the media department only yesterday. Far more perfect than a jellyfish. I'm sure if somebody was giving money for a jellyfish foundation, we'd bung a jellyfish on the front of that. But, um, but we've managed to resist that temptation so far. Josh is more perfect than a jellyfish because they both participate in animalness. Now let's go back to God. God is more perfect than a jellyfish. How and why can we say that God is more perfect than a jellyfish? Scota says it's because both God and jellyfish participate in something. They both share something in common. What do they share in common? Being. Existence. <coughs> so Scotus says, if Aquinas' argument is going to work, we have to allow that the way that Josh exists, the way that jellyfish exists, and the way that God exists, there's some level of identity between them. And this is what Scotus calls... The university of being. The university of being. <clears throat> Not the analogy of being, where the way we exist and the way God exists, you can compare them by analogy, but the university of being, where by the way we exist and the way God exists are, in some sense, identical. Not in every sense, but there is some grain of identity between the two that allows us to use concepts drawn from the world around us and apply them meaningfully to God. 
So God is more perfect than a jellyfish. We can sustain that statement because both the jellyfish and God exist. They both possess being, but God possesses it more perfectly than the jellyfish does. Why does Scotus do this? Why does he go to great lengths? Because he wants to protect the late medieval project of natural theology. Where the rubber really hits the road for Scotus is in the proofs. Scotus says the proofs for God's existence only work. They only work if the language of cause, when applied to the first cause, God, is in some way the same, in some way, not in every, but in some way the same as the language of cause applied to everything that happens after that in creation. You know, Aquinas' proofs will say that ultimately at the moment, you look at me, I stand on the floor, the floor causes me to stand up. The earth's crust supports the earth, the floor. The layers beneath the crust support the crust. The crust itself is part of the world, the world's around the sun, and God supports the world around the sun, and so on. And you come to the end of that chain of causes, and you come to God. And at this moment in time, God is the first cause of all that's happening, because he's there underneath it all, sustaining it. Scotus says that only works if you can say that God is a cause in the way, similar way that this floor is a cause supporting me now. Otherwise, your proof, it gets to the end of natural causes, and then there's an unbridgeable chasm that you just can't get across. You can't say anything about it. So where it becomes important is in defending the proofs for God's existence. And the late medieval theological project depends, to a large extent, upon the ability to prove God's existence. So what started off as an investigation of how we use language about God culminates in the production of something that allows you to prove that God exists. It makes the proof safe as far as Scotus is concerned. It means that he can continue to be a natural theologian. But what the church is teaching, what the church is doing, what he's committed to, continues to be a meaningful exercise. So what starts, if you like, with the jokes about Josh and jellyfish and this kind of thing that seems trivial on one level, becomes crucially important for these guys. Don't have university of being, Skoda says. Don't have natural theology. That has all kinds of implications for the way you understand scripture and everything. So it becomes crucially important at that particular moment in time. I'm not sure that I mentioned, just as a, to go right back to me, I'm not sure that I mentioned that Scotus is a Franciscan, did I? Did I mention he was a Franciscan? That's important as well. Mentioned on a number of occasions, the medieval church, Catholic church today, don't think of it as a monolithic entity where everybody believes the same thing. Never been the case. Thomas Aquinas is a Dominican. Dun Scotus is a Franciscan. When you've got two heavyweights like that, differing on a crucial point like this, what you have developing within the Catholic Church is two separate schools of thought. Of course, it's, as always in all church politics, it's as much tied into personalities, it's as much tied into putting one over on the guy that you don't like as it is on an unadulterated, uncontaminated quest for truth. The Franciscans and the Dominicans will slug it out in the decades before the Reformation vying for supremacy within the church. <coughs> Continues this kind of thing into the Reformation. Those of you, how many did you do the Reformation in the last term? You'll remember that when I talked about Luther, I brought out time and time again that much of the problems that Luther has, many of the problems that Luther has, derive from the Dominicans, who just want to pull one over on the Augustinians at the end of the day. Luther's an Augustinian, so the Dominican boot boys move in to give him a good sort of kicking and keep him in his place. 
So what you have in Scotus' ideas here, very powerful, very brilliant thinker, very quickly his ideas will go well beyond being mere games with words, they become shibboleths, identity markers of particular groups and traditions within the Catholic Church. A little bit like, dare I say, something like six-day creation today, or issues like that, which if one lays aside the theological virtues of these things for one minute, there is no doubt that these ideas very quickly become party flags, party rallying calls. They take on a life well beyond their mere doctrinal significance. So the university of being has great theological significance, but it also has great identity significance for marking you off as good Franciscan as opposed to a dodgy Dominican, or as a dodgy Franciscan as opposed to a good Dominican in the late Middle Ages. <clears throat> so that's Duns Scotus. I introduced that as his major, one of his major contributions that you'll come across when you read about Duns Scotus. Um, he makes other important contributions that we will talk about probably in the second half of the class. The other name I want to introduce to you, and this much more briefly, William of Ockham. Ockham variously spelt, sometimes comes out Ockham, from whom we get the school of thinkers known as the Ockhamists. Ockham was a little village in Surrey. I don't know, any of you know the United Kingdom? Surrey is one of the sort of very wealthy counties around London. Ockham is now, I think, it doesn't exist anymore. I think it's effectively been consumed by London as it expands. Um, while I was living the, the American dream in Texas and Fort Worth last week, it was very interesting <laughs> to, travel, to travel from uh, Dallas to the stock holdings at Fort Worth, which was great fun, I have to say. Um, but it was interesting, you know, the cities have basically collide with each other. And you get a similar thing. Ockham, you know, has simply been the result of the massive expansion, uh, simply been the victim of the massive expansion of London over the years. That was irrelevant, but I had to get the stock holdings into my lecture. <laughs> I actually put my hand in Johnny Cash's handprint, which was, and I was in a supermarket last night and they played a Johnny Cash track, and for the first time in my life, I got a little tear. That <laughs> Saturday night at the stock holdings. So, anyway. Um, William of Ockham. Ockham is most famous for his rejection of universals. <coughs> Talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember I used the example of a dog. Is a dog a dog because there's some kind of universal concept of dogginess out there? Or is he simply, or is, if you like, is dogginess merely a linguistic construct? Oethius, most of the medievals will go with the idea, and Wycliffe is the same, that there's some kind of universal dogginess in which your individual pooch participates and thereby becomes a dog. Ockham will argue that's not the case. There are no such things as universals. There are simply individual existent things. And dogginess, if you like, you look at millions and millions of dogs and you develop an abstract concept of dogginess. It doesn't have any existence beyond its individual instantiation of particular dogs. All dogs go, dogginess disappears. Kind of thing. So, Ockham is a radical thinker on that level. Again, you think, well, this seems very, you know, gosh, I mean, how relevant is all this? Well, of course, it's highly relevant when you come to things like original sin, issues like that. Um, human, humanity. Does God deal with humanity, or does he deal with simply specific existence manifestations that we happen to categorize as humans? So, potentially, there are a lot of significant things that derive from this particular debate. I just want to flag William of Ockham up on that point because much of what I want to say in the second half of the class uh, relates to really Ockham's development of some of the things that Scotus has done. And these then play very directly into the Reformation. Um, I, I find talk of an Aristotelian worldview highly misleading a lot of the time. 
Partly because there is a sense in which everybody prior to 1800, and I mean everybody, is dependent upon an Aristotelian worldview. And that includes Calvin and Luther. I go to Calvin and Luther, I can demonstrate to you, despite their rhetoric, where they use Aristotle. The major problem I have, after saying that the, the, the term is so meaningless because everybody holds to an Aristotelian worldview, um, is that, what do we mean by that? Well, of course, Scotus doesn't hold to an Aristotelian worldview, neither does Aquinas. They both believe the world was created. Aristotle doesn't believe that. So there's a sense in which no Christian holds to an Aristotelian worldview. On the one hand, yes, they, the language of causality is there, and they think that the uh, Aristotle's mechanics and physics is basically correct, but they reject the, etern the eternity of the world. Now, you can argue that Aristotle is ambiguous on the eternity of the world, but these guys aren't ambiguous on it. So, therefore, that's an immediate point to say that, no, these guys are not Aristotelians in an uncritical sense. The third point is that, you know, it's a question of will the real Aristotle stand up? Um, the next point you got is that there are half a dozen, a dozen, two dozen, who knows how many different interpretations of Aristotle floating around. Uh, not all of which are consistent or compatible with all of the others. So you also have a, a situation where when you talk about the Aristotelian worldview, or, what do you mean by that? Do you mean the Paduan Aristotelian worldview? Do you mean the Parisian Aristotelian worldview? Do you mean the Franciscan Aristotelian worldview? So I find the, the language of, of Aristotelian worldview really too simplistic, I think. Um, you've got to be... You've got to pick on a particular point. You've got to say, is it because they hold Aristotle's view of causality at this point? Or Aristotle's view of the nature of substance at this particular point? I think we need to avoid the generalised, um, these guys hold an Aristotelian worldview. So what is the, is the response to that? What do you mean by that? So I think that that, that sort of objection has to be nuanced. Um, certainly I think that they, they are Aristotelian empiricists to the extent that they believe that uh, if I go over and kick, I, went, yeah. I go and kick on these guys in the front row and they scream out loud. Um, there is some causal relationship between what I've done and the fact they scream. Whereas I think David Hume would say, well, you know, two things happen to happen simultaneously. You can't prove that they're related. <laughs> I'm sure there are a dozen Philadelphia lawyers who would take issue with that. <laughs> but I think that, that the Aristotelians, to the extent that they think that you can look at phenomena and you can assume that each phenomenon you look at there is a cause logically lying behind it that is, to an extent, recoverable by empirical observation. So I think that, yeah, they'd be Aristotelian on that level. But I want to introduce all those other qualifications before I started talking in the very broad terms. One other thing I should have mentioned about Duns Scotus before the, the break, um, and this is kind of an aside, but it's very significant what's going on in the later Middle Ages. He's a crucial figure in the development of the idea of the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception, of course, does not refer to the virgin birth, or to the conception of Christ, it refers to the conception of Virgin Mary herself. Questions relating to debates about how could Christ be sinful if the Virgin Mary was herself uh, subject to the taint of original sin. Uh, and in the Middle Ages, most theologians prior to Scotus, although we find, it, we find hints of it in something like Irenaeus, who, when he talks about Christ as the second Adam, we'll talk about Mary as the second Eve, we have a as a pretty much a consensus in the Middle Ages, I think, that the Virgin Mary was conceived in original sin, even if that original sin was blotted out by a miraculous act of the Spirit very shortly after her conception. Scotus, however, is 
the theologian, the heavyweight theologian, who argues most forcefully that the Virgin Mary never had attained original sin. She was miraculously preserved from original sin, even at the moment of conception. And this becomes a hallmark of the Franciscans and becomes another of the points of conflict or struggle between the Dominicans, who hold Aquinas's view, which was conceived in original sin, even though the Holy Spirit removed it uh, afterwards. Um, she was conceived in original sin. The Franciscans hold very strongly the Immaculate Conception. And we all know that in the long run, the Immaculate Conception idea is one. It was approved at the Council of Basel sometime in the 15th century, and later went on to become official church dogma. So the Immaculate Conception um, crew won the day at the end of the day. Will, was there ever any uh, any thought around the time of, of bringing that to a logical conclusion? Like, if he's logically saying that because Christ had no sin, therefore Mary could not have had sin, what about Mary's parents? Oh, yeah, at some point you have to come in with a miracle. And the miracle was the Immaculate Conception in this case. Okay. And it's just a miracle. Yeah. So, Carlos. Aquinas is a Dominican. The Order of Preachers. Yeah. Oh, he's turning it against Aquinas? He's, um, he's rejecting Aquinas' position that wasn't just held by Aquinas. It's a, it's a, you know, he's, he's, he's rejecting the consensus opinion. Bonaventure, Albert Gray, Thomas Aquinas, all of the big shots of that time would have disagreed. I throw that out because it is one of the things, I think as well as being known as the subtle doctor, Duns Scotus, he's also known as the Marian doctor in certain circles because of his role in promoting the... Um, position of the Virgin Mary in Catholicism. You also know that the English word dunce, do you know if you get it in America? Dunce, meaning idiot. Guys who in Britain used to stand in the corner of the class with a paper hat on with a D written on it, it comes from Dun Scotus. Because he was so complicated to understand, but he's either a genius or he's an idiot. <laughs> one, one thing or the other. So the modern word dunce comes from Dun Scotus. That's where you get it from. Later Middle Ages, Doctrine of God. Another of the things that's occurring in the move, uh, moves in the later Middle Ages that surround guys like William of Ockham and Duns Scotus moves in the doctrine of God, related in part to a steady collapse in confidence in human reason. Not so much a, a collapse in confidence of natural theology. We've seen that with Duns. There's still room for natural theology in Duns. But a collapse in confidence about predicting how God would act in a fallen world. Good example of this is the doctrine of the incarnation. It gives you a, a way of gauging the slow decline in the confidence in human reason to formulate the doctrine of the incarnation. We looked at Anselm some weeks ago. Anselm's argument is that, well, after humanity had fallen, God could have left the whole of creation to go to hell, quite literally. <coughs> no obligation to save, to intervene, to do anything to restore his creation. But Anselm says, we know that it is more fitting for God to intervene because it's more fitting for him to restore what's been damaged than for him to merely exact the payment from his creation that he's entitled to. It is better, if you like, for him to try to put things back on track than allow things to derail totally. And Anselm is working there both against the background of medieval feudalism, where it was more honourable for, it was, it, was, it was better for the feudal lord to allow his recalcitrant vassals to pay him reparations to restore the relationship between them than it was for him to simply cut them off. But underlying all that, of course, is Anselm's confidence that God thinks pretty much as we think. The ways of God are quite, they may not be our ways, but they're quite similar. 
So Anselm uses that phrase, it is fitting, it is fitting, it is fitting, again and again and again. He has this concept of fittingness. That he imputes both to humanity and to God. It is fitting for God to behave in this way. I have confidence that God is not so different to us that I can't work from the way I think to the way God thinks. Essentially what he's saying. So the incarnation, while uh, not um, absolutely necessary and that God could have allowed the world to go to hell, becomes very, very predictable. Secondly, if God wants to restore his creation, how does he do it? But he must do it with the God-man, Anselm says, because the person uh, has to be uh, infinite, to pay an infinite price, and has to be human because it's humanity that's under, <coughs> excuse me, under the obligation of paying the price. Again, he's working very confidently from what he thinks, how he thinks God should behave to how God must behave. Aquinas, then, comes in slightly different. Aquinas asked the question in the Summa Theologiae. Was it necessary for God to become man in order to save humanity? Aquinas says, no, it was not necessary. God could have become stone if he wanted. He could have become a bunny rabbit. He could have. He could have merely by an act of his will said, oh, I'm going to forgive everybody. God's omnipotent after all. Powerful. Supreme. He could simply by fiat say, oh, forget it. I'll forgive everybody. I, I created the world, I rule the world, I make the rules. I'm simply going to forgive everybody by click of my fingers. There's no need to have an incarnation. But, says Aquinas, the incarnation is the best way of going about it because there are all these kind of benefits that flow from it. Christ comes and he's God manifesting in the flesh. He reveals some aspect of God's inner being to us. When he's hung on the cross, he gets his argument from Gregory of Nyssa. His arms are outstretched as if to embrace the whole world, showing the scope of his death for everybody. So there are all these kind of benefits that Aquinas says come from the incarnation. That means that while God didn't have to act this way, he was going to save, it was extremely likely that he would, because there are all these kind of benefits that accrue to God and to us from so doing. Then you come to Scotus. Underlying Aquinas' view there is, again, confidence. Not that we can say how God must work, but saying that we can... We could, humanly speaking, predict how God is very likely to work, and we can see why he'd have done it in this way. We can work out why he'd have done it in this way. Scotus is very different. Scotus's view is, even if humanity hadn't sinned, Christ would still have become incarnate. Because God is utterly free. And to say that the incarnation is response to sin, and that is what ultimately motivated it, is to try to rationalise an act of God God's ways are not our ways. His ways are far above our ways. We cannot say that God must have acted this way. We cannot even say that this is the best way for God to have acted. We can only say that God did act this way. This derives, this reflects, on one level, an increasing lack of confidence in human reason. We can speculate about that, why it might be the case. Increasing urbanisation, the slow but sure rise of capitalism, banking at this time, perhaps creating more social flux than would have happened before. There are all kinds of speculative reasons one could put out for this. One thing we're certain is that this was happening. Confidence in human ability to dictate to God and to predict how God would act was declining. It received its theological form in the tradition known as voluntarism. Voluntarism came from will. Latin for will, voluntas, meaning will. Voluntarism. Standard medieval approach, and it goes on into the, into the Reformation, standard medieval approach to psychology was that we're all composed of uh, intellect and will. 
Your intellect perceives what is true and your will moves, moves you towards it. You go out today and you see on the ground a loaf, you're hungry and you see the loaf of bread and the, on the other side of the wall you see a poisonous snake. Your intellect perceives that the loaf of bread is good towards it. You eat the bread. You don't go out with the snake and try to eat the snake. You are intellectual beings, if you like. You are driven by your perception of what is true. And the will moves in accordance with what you see as true. That's the ideal situation, anyway, prior to the fall. Things are all horribly muddled up after the fall, according to these guys. But they make basically the same distinction in God. They say, well, God is simple, we know. We can't divide his intellect from his will. But for the sake of talk about God, we can say that God has an intellect that perceives the truth and we have a will that moves towards the good. For Aquinas, part of the basis of his analogy he says that our psychology is analogous to God's. God sees what is true and moves towards it. There is a category of truth, if you like, that God's mind and our mind respond to. Voluntarists, however, say, uh uh-uh, this isn't the case. God is driven by his will. Now, it's important at this point to think what they're actually talking about. They're not actually talking about how God operates at all. They're talking about how he operates from our perspective, how we see God appearing to operate. (coughs) God operates according to his will. Aquinas says that um, God wills something because it is good and true from our perspective. Voluntarists will say, "Uh uh-uh, something is good and true because God wills it. (coughs) There is a difference. In theory, it is possible for God to have created a world where murder is a good thing. Because if God willed that murder be good, then murder would be good. That's voluntarism in its most extreme form, if you like. You all got that? (laughs) (laughs) Intellectualism. X is good, therefore God wills it. God's intellect sees that X is true and good, and therefore he wills it to be. That's intellectualism. Voluntarism. Voluntarism. God wills X, therefore X is good. There is a difference. What it does is it makes God arbitrary from our perspective. Now, to use murder as an example, it's a highly charged emotive example. I'm using that really to, to shock you into seeing how radical this is. As far as I know, only the most extreme voluntarists would have used that example in the Middle Ages. The point they're trying to make is that God is not predictable by the use of human reason. We cannot work out how God thinks from the way we think. It's an epistemological point, if you like. What they're trying to do is guard the mystery of God by saying that we cannot predict a priori, based on our observation of the world, based on our own understanding of good and evil, how God must act. So, for example, a conscious would say to Anselm, and say, you keep using this phrase, it is fitting. How do you know that it's fitting? And Anselm might say, well, I know that it's fitting because I'm a vassal and I have this feudal lord and... Um, I forgot to pay my tithe one year, and he got very angry with me, but he allowed me to pay my tithe in 20%, because he felt that was better than taking me out and executing me. It was more fitting, it brought more honour to his name for me to pay a fine and reinstate myself in his good books and to be executed. 
So he said, that's the kind of fittingness I'm talking about. But Vonshus would immediately say to him, ah, how do you know God, God works like that? How do you know God works like that? To which Anselm, if he was clever, would probably respond, well, I know that he works like that because the scripture tells me he works like that. Which one of would say, ah, now we're getting to it. But the scripture is very different to saying you're taking your analogy from the world around you. If scripture tells you God acts like that, then that's fine, because that's the way God has chosen to act. But don't assume that the world that you live in reflects the way God operates. So that's how voluntarism comes into its own. And this is where it gets important for the Reformation, of course. Because what are these guys really saying? What are the voluntarists really saying is, you need revelation to know about how God works. It's if you like. Ironically, while Scotus is all for guarding the project of natural theology in what one might call the broad philosophical sphere, when it comes to the more narrowly specific Christian sphere, Scotus, by arguing for this voluntaristic view of God, focuses attention more and more on revelation, becomes more extreme in William of Ockham. And this, of course, is one of the points of continuity between late Middle Ages and the Reformation. It is no coincidence that Martin Luther is an Ockhamist. Because what did he learn from his Ockhamist masters? He learned that you can't predict how God works. You need to look at the sources of revelation to see how God works. Do not predict it in advance. Do not trust your own intellect. Look at revelation. Now, of course, revelation for these guys is closely focused on the teaching magisterium of the church. So we're not talking about the scripture principle that we get in the Reformation. We're talking here about revelation. What is it? It's basically what the church tells me the Bible says and how the church uses the Bible. The teaching magisterium of the church is the, if you like, the channel of revelation. Now, that will change at the Reformation, where Luther will say, no, the church has clearly deviated from the teaching of Scripture. The church is no longer the channel of revelation in the way that the medievals argued it was. So there is a material difference between Luther and Scotus and Ockham. But what he gets from them is this radical focus on revelation, because they teach him that God is utterly mysterious outside of his revelation. And just, as, uh, just for the record... Those who say, you know, always posit this radical break between Luther and the Middle Ages. Luther remains an alchemist in terms of his understanding of knowledge and language to the day he dies. He tells us that. He doesn't have any problem with Ockham's view of language or Ockham's voluntarism. He has problems with Ockham's view of the church, with Ockham's view of revelation. But the voluntarism remains with Luther throughout his career. No William of Ockham, no Martin Luther. He goes far as to say that. Because Ockham both creates the positive framework and he creates the problems that provide the background to Martin Luther. So, voluntarism, very, very important in focusing the church's mind upon revelation at this point. Any questions? I'll take, I'll take three, and then I'll... I think you guys at the back are the first three, and then I'll, I'll take something at the end. Dan? Um, would the voluntarists see God as, as acting consistently with what he's revealed? In other words, if God has revealed that he wills X, therefore yeah. X is good. Yeah. Does he always, is that consistent? God self-binds himself to his revelation. If God has revealed that, if God says, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is not in his own being bound to that. God was under an obligation to say that. But once he said it, he's committed himself to it. It's like you, when you sign a contract to buy a house, you are legally bound to make up the mortgage, keep up the mortgage payments, etc. So there's nothing in the definition of Dan Passarelli that requires you to pay a mortgage in this particular house. You voluntarily bind yourself to it. 
That's where the voluntarists come in. And again, it's another point of contact with the Reformation, because the Reformation God is a self-bound God. And the covenant God, of course, is a self-bound God. So this stuff lies in the background to a lot of later covenantal thinking. And um, when we read the first couple of chapters of Peter Lilbach's book on Calvin, he ties Calvin very nicely, I think, with the later medieval voluntarist tradition on this one. That God <coughs> voluntarily submits himself to standards that he need not have done. Mark, I think you got a question. I was just going to ask, just to clarify, Scotus and Ockham are both Voluntarists, yeah. They're both voluntarists. Scotus is a realist. He believes that bogginess has a real existence out there. That's where they differ. But Scotus is a voluntarist in his doctrine of God. He develops, in fact, I'll give you a couple of the, the categories that he uses. Uh, Scotus will talk about theologia in se and the theologia veatoris, both of which concepts are picked up by later reform thinkers. Scotus makes... Theologian say, what's that? Theology in itself. This is God's knowledge of himself. It is infinite. It is perfect. God knows everything about God. What do we have? We have theology of the Ator. We have the theology of the pilgrim. We have theology that is revealed to us that is sufficient for what we are to do upon earth. So Scotus picks up on that and he says, you know, you cannot extrapolate back from this to this. The theology you have is only ever revealed finite theology. You cannot go back from finite theology to infinite theology. This is very, very consistent with what the Reformed say. Even in heaven, the Reformed say, you will not have perfect knowledge of God because you're finite. You will always have theology accommodated to your capacity. So Scotus is a voluntarist. He wants to mark off God's knowledge of God very clearly from our knowledge of God. Take one more question, then I'll move on. Chris. Um, why do um, I think uh, the the obvious move on the doctrine of evil for the voluntarists to say it's not revealed. The origin of evil is not revealed to us. We only deal with what God has revealed. We know that evil comes into the world. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know why it comes. And I haven't, I, you know, part of me thinks that that's about as good as you ever get on the problem of evil. It's appropriately modest, I think, when approaching that problem. I recommended a book, just as, a, as an aside, I did recommend a book on my, my Tuesday class where the question of evil came up. Henri Blochet's book, Evil and the Cross of Christ, I think it's probably about the best book in the history of the church ever written on evil. So if you want to see the really best answer, go to Henri Blochet, Evil and the Cross of Christ, where he really says we, we can't solve evil in terms of its origin. We can only solve evil in terms of the fact that God ultimately conquers it. It seems to me to be quite a voluntaristic in some ways. But on that level, the voluntarists are only perhaps being more honest and upfront than... <coughs> some other theologians are. We'll move on anyway to uh, Calvin criticises all this. He says this is something this, uh, it, there's a distinction between I'm going to introduce now between um, God's ordained will ordained power and his absolute power which links in very closely with the voluntarist idea. Funny thing about Calvin when he trashes this in the institutes is he really goes he says this is dreadful this makes God into an arbitrary tyrant this distinction. So we must reject it. And then in the next chapter, he goes on to argue for precisely the same distinction, but in different words. Clearly doesn't understand what the medievals are doing. They're not saying that God is an arbitrary tyrant. They are saying that we cannot predict how God will act. God thinks in a very different way to us. It's an epistemological point they make, rather than an ontological point. So do not think that the voluntarists make God arbitrary. He may appear arbitrary to you, but that's because you don't know God as God knows God. 
Bible tells us he isn't arbitrary. It has other things like, you know, how do you determine your criteria of justice and righteousness? These sort of things. You do it by looking at scripture. You do it by looking at revelation. How do you understand God's wisdom? You do it by looking at revelation. How do you understand God's power? You look at it by, do it by looking at revelation. Remember those who did Luther, Luther's theology of the cross. He says, power is weakness. God's power is most perfectly demonstrated in the weakness of the cross. That's an alchemist's way of looking at power. Not Occam's view of power, but Luther is going in with the supposed saying, I cannot go in. I cannot look at Frederick the Wise and think, hey, this man's got power. So God's power must be an infinite time bigger than his. Luther's going in saying, Frederick the Wise has power, but if I'm going to understand how God conceives of power, I must need to see how God operates and talks about power within the Bible. So you can see voluntarism, very, very important for the Reformation. Voluntarists <laughs> also make this interesting distinction between ordained power and absolute power. This allows them to maintain the fact that God is all-powerful, and yet that, as Dan has, has asked the question, he's also utterly reliable from our perspective. Absolute power. Everything God can do, hypothetically speaking, even before, before creation, if you like, everything God can do. I would like to say God can't do everything, even before creation. I had a long argument, right? God can't create a triangle with four sides. I had an hour and a half argument once in a class with a student from the Russian Orthodox Church who was convinced that God could create a triangle with four sides. It's analytically incoherent. God, you know, God can create a square with four sides and he can create a triangle with three sides, but he can't create a square that is a triangle. It's logically impossible. So the Scotists would say, absolute power is everything God can do that doesn't involve logical contradiction. So God, if you like, it allows God complete freedom in every other realm than the logical one. That's not, I'm not here saying that logic somehow stands above God. I suppose I'm saying in some ways the laws of logic are bodied in the very being of God himself. They have no priority, logical or otherwise, to him. And everything God can do, the ordained power is everything God chooses to do. Great distinction, this. Is this world necessary? No, not according to God's absolute power. Could have created a different world. Could have not bothered creating a world at all. So God's omniscience is protected. God's freedom is protected. The contingency of this world is underlined. God could have created this world without me, without you. It doesn't involve logical contradiction. But it does mean that once God has decreed to do something, he's committed to that. God binds himself to that. So once he's committed to creating this world, he creates this world. Once God has decided to create you and me, he's committed to creating you and me. He didn't have to do it. He chose freely to do it. So God becomes both completely free, according to his absolute power, and completely reliable, according to his ordained power. You can see how this kind of idea feeds through his covenant theology. It's all lying there in the background. It focuses us once again on revelation, because revelation tells us what God has ordained to do. It tells us about the commands God has issued, the promises God has made. God doesn't make a promise and then not deliver on his promises. He commits himself to that promise and delivers upon it. That does not mean that he would have had to make that promise because he is God. He has made that promise because he has freely chosen so to do. This, of course, feeds through the Reformation in another way, both a positive and a negative way. 
The question then becomes the basis of justification. One of the questions we're addressing is justification. <clears throat> How do we merit God's favour? And remember, justification in the Middle Ages is based upon merit. How do we merit God's favour? Well, there are various ways of meriting God's favour. There are acts of attrition, which hopefully lead us to acts of contrition. There's the sacramental system. Attrition, acts of penance performed because we're frightened of God. You're frightened of God. You're frightened that he's going to cast you into hell. Extend your stay in purgatory or something. Therefore, you perform acts of attrition. Attrition doesn't refer to the act as such, as to the motivation for the act. It's fear. But hopefully, in the grand scheme of things, we move to acts of contrition. Acts of contrition are acts driven by love of God. Why do I turn up and lecture here? Because I'm frightened that Professor Logan will give me the push if I don't turn up. My lecturing to you is an act of attrition driven by fear of the administration. <laughs> however, however, when I go home to my parents, and I take my dad a bottle of scotch or something as a gift. Why do I do that? I don't do that as an act of attrition to earn his favour. I do that as an act of contrition. Because I know I gave him a hard time when I was a kid and I want to show him now that I love it. It's an act of contrition. <laughs> so the acts of attrition, acts of contrition, they apply in the church as well. Sacramental system is there. Baptism, confirmation, the mass, marriage, holy orders, final unction, penance. Those are the seven, I think. I used to ask students if, um, if they could name the seven sacraments. If they couldn't, the follow-up was, well, you know, I'll knock some marks off your test unless you can name the actors who paid the seven, magnificent seven. <laughs> and, um, the crunch was always uh, Horsper Colt and Brad Dexter. Those are the two that people forget. The other five are easy. Horsper Colt and Brad Dexter. A student years later, I had an email from one student saying, I can do it, and he emailed me the seven names. And then at the bottom, he upped the ante by saying, now I want you to name me the actors who played the Dirty Dozen in response. <laughs> I got five or six, and then I really kind of faded away on that one. But anyway, the sacraments, particularly the Mass, where you receive an infused habit of righteousness, grace. Mass is crucial. But questions start to rise in the later Middle Ages. Well, what exactly is the relationship between our acts of penance and... God's granting to us of grace and ultimately salvation. What are the implications of voluntarism for this? Now, under the old intellectualist approach, one would have to say that uh, there is a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between uh, an act of yours being good and the reward given for it. Because God is acting in accordance with his being. We can sort of predict what that being is. And if an act is worthy of something, then God will reward it. If it isn't worthy of something, then God won't reward it. When you start dealing with a voluntarist God, though, the situation becomes a bit more complicated. What is it that makes an act meritorious? Is it that it contains a kernel of good? Going back to, is it good and therefore does God reward it? Or is it something external to the act that makes it? And the voluntarists, by being consistent with their uh, approach, want to say, well... Actually, there's nothing intrinsic in the act itself that makes it worthy of God's blessing or grace. God decides, according to his decreed will, that action X is meritorious. There's nothing in itself meritorious about being baptised, for example. It is because God, by his decree, has decided that 
pouring on of water, in the context of the Trinitarian Reformation, in the context of the institutional church, is helpful to salvation, that it is helpful to salvation. Acts become the equivalent of the currency we carry in our pocket. Now, there was a time where, you go back four or five hundred years in, in Britain, the currency was made of the money that was worth, of metal that was worth something, coins were gold. And Henry VIII devalues the currency. He doesn't alter the international exchange rates on the currency. He adds muck to the metal that's used to make the coins so that they are debased. The currency becomes debased because the gold crown that you have in your pocket is no longer as pure gold crown as it was two or three years ago. It becomes debased. There's something intrinsic in the coin that makes it valuable. Now, the cent you carry in your pocket, well, take, take a, if you had, let's say, a $100 bill in your pocket, what is the intrinsic value of a $100 bill? Put more than one of a cent or something? You know, if you mushed it up into a pulp, and went into a shop and handed them a kind of gob of chewed up paper and said, I want $100 worth of goods, they'd probably phone some psychiatric hospital or something. They'd laugh at you and say, This is ridiculous, this isn't worth $100. <clears throat> the piece of paper is only worth $100 because, <clears throat> well, in Britain, it's the Bank of England, I suppose here's the, is it the, the Federal Reserve or something, yeah. have decided that you know, if push comes to shove, right down the economic food chain, at some point or another, they're willing to back up that $100 bill with $100 worth of goods or services. The relationship between the dollar bill and the dollar bill, and let's say, go back to, let's say, a wonderful pair of cowboy boots that I bought last Thursday or Friday. The relationship is entirely arbitrary. It's established by the will of the Federal Reserve and with the compliance of shopkeepers, employers, people like me, cowboy boot manufacturers, the whole lot, we all fit into this great complex where this piece of paper becomes worth $100. Well, voluntarists make the move in terms of meritorious works in the late Middle Ages, and they say, yeah, there's nothing um, intrinsic in our acts that necessarily makes them worthy of God's salvation. But God interposes an act of his will, and he says, if you do X, I'll reward you. If you do this trivial little thing, you hand me that little piece of paper that's worth 0.01% a cent, I'll give you the first steps on the road to eternal life. It's a brilliant move because it's, <clears throat> it's both not Pelagian and maintains human freedom at the same time. It's not Pelagian because it lies in God's decision. God's decision to grant you this on the basis of some small thing. What Pelagia sees much more of a one-to-one ratio. You, you can work towards things that are good in God's sight. Late Middle Ages are able to cut that away and say, no, the thing that you do is only worth something because God, by his decreed will, has decided that that act will be meritorious. He could have decided that some other act would be meritorious. He could have decided that act wouldn't be meritorious at all. So you come to the point where justification becomes rooted in the will of God. That again is another crucial move towards the Reformation. The Reformation, what is, what is justification for Luther? Justification is a decision of God that you are righteous on the basis of an act of faith. I said it again, I'll say it before and I'll say it again. Luther would not have happened if he hadn't been an Occamist at this point. Because Occam and his followers give Luther the idea that justification can be rooted in a decision of God that is rooted in God and not in something intrinsic in you. Gabriel Beale and his followers, the immediate precursors to Luther, <coughs> will root this little thing that you have to do in, they call doing your best. Facienti quod inseest deus. Gratiam non de negat is the Latin phrase. To the one who does what is in him, God does not deny grace. To the one who does his best, God gives grace. Do your best. 
do your penance, God will give you grace. And when you get your first infusion of grace, then you're able to go on and work with God and produce works that are truly meritorious. But to get yourself into a state of grace, you don't have to be perfect. You simply have to meet the criteria that God has set. In the young Luther, Luther comes increasingly to identify the, uh, the minimum that you have to do, doing your best with, making yourself utterly humble and abased before God. That is then transformed into making yourself utterly dependent upon God in humility. And that is then transformed into trust in God, which becomes the basis for your justification. So this is how the voluntarism of the late Middle Ages, we'll explore this in more detail in the Reformation class next year, it's how voluntarism in the late Middle Ages feeds through the Reformation, because it makes the point that justification is ultimately rooted in a decision of God in your favour, not in something intrinsically valuable in yourself. Any questions or comments on that? <clears throat> this again is why it's a nonsense. You get this time and time again in popular Protestant accounts of the Reformation. It is a nonsense to present the Reformation as a clean break with the Middle Ages. <clears throat> Apart from anything else, the Trinity is there. You know, the Trinity continues throughout early church, Middle Ages, Reformation. The Reformers don't want to disagree with the Catholics and the Trinity. Whatever, I think Robert Raymond might want to say on this. There is no difference, I don't think. Secondly, there are important points of continuity. Things that the medieval say, quite literally, make way for what the Reformers will say at a later stage. The Reformation doctrine of justification is made possible by developments made by good sons of the Catholic Church in the late Middle Ages. That is not to say that there are no breaks and distinctions between the two. That is not to say that Occam is a Lutheran. Luther is an Occamist, but Occam is no Lutheran. The sacramental system <coughs> retains a significance in medieval doctrines of justification that it does not have in Protestantism. The whole idea of merit an imparted righteousness of Christ does not have a role in Reformation understandings of justification. So what I'm saying to you today is neither the well, like, kind of naive, sometimes ecumenical view that you get put across that, hey, it was just the Reformation was just a little dispute between people that fundamentally agreed. Well, they were, A, they were very clever theologians, and B, they knew they were agreed on a lot of things. You looked in class the other week on the Lutheran Catholic uh, agreements on justification. It doesn't make any improvements on the Council of Trent. The Catholics and the Lutherans knew they agreed about a lot of stuff in the 16th century. They knew that. They knew they, they agreed on the Trinity. They knew they agreed on the need for Christians to demonstrate their life through renewal. They knew that they agreed on um, the fact that justification was centred in Christ. They disagreed on how it was, and that was the crucial thing they split over. It's the one thing not addressed in the document, of course. Documents document is presented as some kind of ecumenical triumph. What it is, is the Council of Trent with the rude bits taken out. <laughs> so, tremendous continuity, but don't be taken in by those who reduce the disagreements to the level of trivia. The Reformers knew they agreed on what with the Catholics, but didn't allow that to sidetrack them from fundamental differences. But on the other hand, don't allow anyone to sell you the lie that the Reformers simply break with the Middle Ages. Most of the Reformers were middle-aged by the time they came to the Reformation. You simply can't abandon all of your education to middle age. There have got to be continuities. Common sense dictates that. And then when you go and look at the text, you can see the same kind of questions, the same kind of issues coming up in Reformation texts that have been coming up in medieval texts for two or three hundred years before. Even down to questions such as uh, how necessary is it that Christ's bones were not broken? You know, the question, you know, one of his bones would be broken. Does that prophecy make it? Did it make Christ have super steel bones? And if you'd gone up to him hitting with a club, you'd not have been able to break them? What does, you know, how does that question? 
How's that question answered? The reformers deal with that kind of question just the same as the medieval counterparts did. At a more significant level, they pick up on key strains in late medieval voluntarism in the development of their own understanding of justification.